to hit the brakes. Welcome to Swerve South. Hey, y'all. Welcome to another edition of Swerve South. We're cackling at ourselves because we're imagining doppelgangers taking over our show. This might happen in the future, but that's when our technology gets better. I'm Jamie Harker. I'm director of the Sarah Eisen Center for Women and Gender Studies. I'm here with my co-conspirator, Teresa Starkey. And I always appreciate that tagline for myself. Um, yes. Thanks, Jamie. And we're also here with another special guest uh, today, Kevin Cozart. Yes, Say hello, Kevin. <laughs> Hello, all. So Kevin is our operations coordinator. Um, Teresa, though she did not mention it, is our associate director. So we oh, like to refer true. to the two of us. Yes, I just I just want to throw that out. So we call ourselves Earth, Wind, and Fire. Um, Kevin is Earth. He's the grounded one, of course. Um, or Wind. Are you Wind? Which are you? I'm Wind. <laughs> all I know is I'm Fire because I'm the one who gets in trouble and they have to read me in. Um, we are delighted to have Kevin join us on. On, I was going to say on camera, but actually on mic um, for our discussion. We've been talking about decades and, and uh, we want to talk about the queer 90s today. And since Kevin was coming out during the 90s and has a kind of personal connection to it, we thought it would be fun to bring in his slightly younger response to this, younger than us, which is hard not to be for most folks. But we're glad that he's here. So welcome, Kevin. Thank you. Uh, so a little background, and then I thought we would just dive in. So one of the things that we were really interested in thinking about, and I'm actually teaching a class right now on the queer 90s, so I'm thinking a lot about the 90s, but the 90s was a moment when there was this sudden visibility in mainstream media of queer people in a way that they hadn't been before. Um, and there are a couple of, it's hard to know why this happened. That's always one of those like zeitgeist moments. I won't try to answer that. But there were a couple of key moments that happened early in the decade that I think kind of laid the table for this. Um, one that I always like to mention is Minnie Bruce Pratt, who's one of my personal heroes, uh, is a poet, former member of the Feminary Collective. And she had published a, a collection of poetry with a small independent press called Firebrand Press. Uh, about her losing custody of her sons after coming out as a lesbian. And it's called Crime Against Nature. Great collection, published by a small press, was very much part of this independent media underground scene in feminist bookstores. It gets the Lamont Award, which is, was, at the time was one of the most prestigious poetry prizes awarded in the United States. And so it was this really dramatic moment of coming out of this feminist print culture into mainstream media. Other things that happened in the early 90s, Angels in America by Tony Kushner opens on Broadway. It starts in these ind smaller independent theaters, has a Broadway opening, wins a Pulitzer Prize, uh, and brings, a, you know, and the subtitle, like Gay Fantasia on National Themes, really brings a kind of queer perspective to the fore. You've got a sudden influx of representation of queer people on television as well. So the real world, which was one of these big early reality television moments on MTV. When they go to San Francisco, they feature a young man who has AIDS and is gay, Pedro. Uh, and he's in that, that house. You also have a number of um, musicians who are pretty prominent, more um, queer women than queer men in the 90s. We talked about this, the 80s had like every queer man in new wave band around, but you had a lot more of that. So someone like Melissa Etheridge, who did kind of a rock and roll scene, but, uh, but you know, was kind of like blonde haired, lipstick lesbian, 
um, version of that anyway, uh, was very popular. And so was uh, country slash crooner Katie Lang, who had one of the most beautiful women's voices in the world and, and was described with Rolling Stone as one butch babe. So she had this really interesting kind of persona. Um, there's lots more independent movies, mainstream Hollywood movies about queer issues and queer life. The literature goes crazy. There's lots and lots of, of exposure. And so we just thought we'd talk a little bit about some of those queer moments in the 90s, our encounters with them, um, and you know, kind of just see where we want this conversation to go. So let me pause for a minute and see if either of my buddies here want to take up one of these threads and talk a little bit about queer culture in the 90s. Um, I think since we have Kevin here as our guest, that Kevin, you should go ahead and just get us started in thinking about this moment of the 90s for yourself, right? And this narrative or, or moment of coming out. What is this 90s queer culture for you? So <clears throat> thinking back on it, um, for me, it was a bit of a, a trickle decade in that there were things in the early and middle part. But then for me, when I was dealing with kind of my own sexuality, 99, 2000 is when it really was a full on kind of thing for me. But I guess for me, I will start with um, Interview with a Vampire. Um, I got to say, though, you know, Jamie and Teresa know me and know that I'm a bit of a, a vampire file and an Anne Rice fan, but for me, you know, I'd read Dracula in the 10th grade, and then in the 11th grade, I switched schools, and really were able to go see movies for the first time, you know, where I grew up, I didn't have easy access to a movie theater, um, I don't even think we had a VCR in the house, um, so I didn't really get to see movies, um, and then I'm in a town where, there are four movie theaters. I have transportation to the movie theaters. I have friends who want to go, you know, every weekend. An interview came out in the fall of 94. And I went and saw it. And for me, it was kind of the first time that there were queer vampires. Up until then, um, vampires usually when they drink, they drink from the opposite gender kind of thing. But here you had a completely different um, take on the vampires. They were flamboyant. Um, they were good looking. Um, and there's a line, and I'm going to butcher it, but it goes something like, what Lestat really prefers is the blood of a young Daryl man or something like that. So, um, so for me, that was kind of one of the first um, really queer things that I can remember um, but that also goes hand in hand with my graduating class was 117. And by the time we graduated, there were five openly gay males in it in Mississippi in the mid nineties. So it was also seeing gay people around me, you know, who were openly gay and unashamed and kind of being able to see what it meant to be gay through them. So I guess that would kind of be my start into um, the queer nineties. Um, hey, I also got to say, and talk about film before you move on. Cause I think there's a lot to say about queer film. Is that okay? Yeah. Um, if I can do one more right quick. Um, so the other one, and this just happens to be another uh, movie based on Anne Rice is exit to Eden, which was in some ways a really bad movie, but it was so bad that it was good, but it also was for me, the first kind of movie that I remember that presented like, 
S&M and not a comedic way. I mean, like there was a comedy film, but like S&M and this alternate sexuality and that kind of stuff was in the background and not in a comedic way kind of thing. And the book is even queerer than the movie ended up being. So, and the book is not a comedy at all. So. Now, Anne Rice is, is again, a wildly popular novelist who's writing homoeroticism in very openly. Um, and you saw that happening in books. You know, I'm just finishing teaching um, The Gilda Stories by Jewel Gomez, the first chapter of which was published in The Village Voice uh, in the early 90s, and, and it was published in 1991. And that's a very openly Black lesbian vampire story. Um, but you didn't see that translate into more mainstream media in the 80s, right? Most of the mainstream portrayals if they showed up at all, were tragic, were, you know, they, they would die. There were lots of, of, you know, they were used as the butt of a joke, right? Turning into all that. There was, it was very hard to find mainstream representations of queer people that were not, um, that were not negative in some way, that were not a cautionary tale. Now, alternative media had all kinds of other things going on. And I know we talked a lot about RuPaul's kind of public cable access in Atlanta, and if you're in Atlanta, it was great. But if you were in a little town in Mississippi or in a you know conservative household somewhere else where you didn't have access to it, you didn't really see that. So that's one of the things that was so groundbreaking about all of the mainstream movies in the 1990s that featured gay characters in a more positive way that just gave you a vision of that. Um, I'm thinking about all the stuff on drag that comes out in the 1990s, right? Uh, the Birdcage is a classic, of course. Wong Boo, thanks for everything, Julie Newmar. Um, the Adventures of Priscilla, Queen of the Desert, which was from Australia. Um, I know there are many others I'm forgetting, right? So there's there were a lot, in, and a lot of straight actors now wanted to play gay, and that used to be seen as a descent, right? Like, ooh, that would ruin your career. It becomes something that is is attractive. You see all kinds of um, films with queer women as well. The one that always cracks me up is Three of Hearts, which is... A, a love triangle with a lesbian, a bisexual woman, and a man who works as a hustler. Um, and there's this whole kind of moment of openly portraying that kind of relationship. Um, you've got lots of films that are showing you queer people in different places, in different countries, um, often love stories, sometimes you know, showing aspects of queer culture that you might not see in mainstream ways. Um, and you were able to imagine yourself or project yourself into these different spaces in ways that it was harder to do if you didn't have access. Now, if you were a talent, didn't have a movie theater, it was still tough. But for a lot of folks, even if there was a more complicated way to look at it, that was your first chance to see something in the world that let you imagine a future that wasn't sort of ending up in a mental institution or ending up right dead or ending up, you know, like imprisoned or all the kind of cautionary tales that we saw quite a bit of. So it was very exciting to get to go to films. And then you have all the, like the rise of gay and lesbian film festivals, all the independent cinema, some of which is a little embarrassing. I'm going to admit now, like I'm showing my class watermelon woman, which I really like, but is also clearly a kind of amateurist production. But even the fact that you had that and that people were telling stories in a wide variety of ways really opened things up. Um, Teresa, I'm going to pause for a minute because I know that you had a favorite kind of, I think, public access or Canadian version of a, of a television series, but you had access to a lot of the underground or less mainstream stuff in the 90s as well. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, well, I mean, I, I'm just thinking about uh, the Canadian sketch show Kids in the Hall, um, 
which had really amazing um, comedic actors and writers, right, that are doing gender bending and drag. And then also in the 90s, they would come out with their feature length movie, Brain Candy. Uh, so I, just, I always just think of the 90s in that moment and think of like uh, Mark McKinney, Dave Foley, uh, Scott Thompson, and um, Bruce McCullough, Kevin McDonald, right? So, the, so for them, that was this moment of just coming home um, from work in the afternoons. Like I was waitressing at the time, right, in Virginia Highlands, and I would come home and that would be part of uh, my afternoon ritual, right, is watching Kids in the Hall with my roommate. Um, Todd Schaefer, who is a friend of the center and has come down for many of the pride uh, events, right? And, and been our MC for us. So I mean, part of that for me represents this sort of queer 90s for me is watching that show, but at the same time, right? Being involved with um, a queer art scene that's already happening locally. Yet you, we, we talked about, right? The um, independent access, right? Television show. Um, but I'm thinking about the um, queer... Uh, theater troupe that was called 800 East, right? And the different types of productions that they would put on around town. Um, and just the kind of subversive and crazy shows that they would do. So there was very much, right, a very sort of dynamic, right, underground queer culture that's happening in Atlanta, right? I'm seeing it at both on television, but also at the same time um, participating in it. And then also, I think of uh, the Atlantic Atlantic music scene. And in this moment, um, I think I'm getting my genealogy of music right. But we have bands uh, like Opal Fox Quartet, right, in which we have, um, there's this sort of Southern, right, queer drag going on. But yeah, thinking about what I'm seeing, like, happening on the stage musically, right, and then, like, on the screen and in these different spaces, so... And that's important. That's something we were talking about a little bit earlier is, is there is already this vibrant actual scene, like cultural scene of people in real places. There are gay neighborhoods. There's a whole kind of network of queer culture that's happening often in urban environments, not solely, but that's where you see a lot of it happening. So it isn't that there isn't queer culture before the 90s, of course. It's that you're getting the mainstream view is noticing certain aspects of that queer culture and in some ways celebrating it. But what made the 90s, I think, work so well is that there was still a vibrant actual physical cultural scene. There was a vibrant underground scene, an independent network that was working more symbiotically with the mainstream movement. Um, and it hadn't it hadn't yet kind of undermined that. Right. So I think some of the worry that happened, one of the things that happens in the 90s is you have this whole amazing network of, say, feminist and queer bookstores that had been developed over the last couple of decades. Most urban areas had at least one of those and they would have readings. You'd have folks come to it. They would sponsor events. Um, and you start to have the rise of mega bookstores. This is pre Amazon, but you have Borders and Barnes and Noble. And what happens as the nineties go on is those start knocking those other independent bookstores out of business, including the feminists and gay ones. Um, and there's a worry because people say, look, just because now they have a gay section doesn't mean they always will. You need to support your smaller local offerings. And people didn't always do that right? Now that you can live in any neighborhood, it's still important that you have a visible neighborhood that people can go to that becomes a center. And you start to see those, if not totally unraveling, getting less focal point by the end of the 90s. But early on, they're all happening at the same time. So it just felt like this abundance of riches. And it wasn't at all clear that that this new mainstream moment, everyone thought, oh, we've made it, right? Like we're, we're in it. And, and nobody imagined that that could go away. 
um, that that focus can go away, which is kind of in some ways what happened in the 2000s. You still have some important things happening, but there's not the same focus on it. Um, but that kind of back and forth is important because there's a real question, like, is this selling out? Are we taking off the the authentic edge? Are we making this palatable to mainstream taste? Are we, what happens when you take this cool, vibrant underground culture and you show it to the mainstream? Is it is it diluting it? Is it harming it? Is it is it exploiting it? That's a big question. Go ahead, Z. Well, no, I was just, and, and this is going to, this may seem like I'm going down a wormhole or a tangent, but suddenly when we're talking about, you're thinking about like bookstores or we're thinking about independent cinema or we're thinking about um, theater and queer culture, right? All of these different sort of intersections that are happening. It suddenly struck me, and I don't know why I haven't thought about this before, but I also think about this idea of queer culture and food. And I think of Atlanta and I specifically think of the small restaurant, um, The Flying Biscuit. Right. So suddenly I think about queer culture and food and it's suddenly a restaurant that has a lineage or a history to it. Right. And, and it's connected this to sort of neighborhoods. Um, and then, of course, right, it turns into something right that gets expanded and, and franchised. But uh, I, so it's this is interesting sort of moment in this 90s. Right. Sort of at, at least thinking about Atlanta. Right. Section, all the things that are going on. So. Can we talk about Flying Biscuit for a minute? I won't, I won't make it stay here too long. My, my father, my parents moved to Atlanta in 1989. So I would go back and forth from graduate school to visit them. And they lived right around the corner from Flying Biscuit. So they were so excited about it. They loved it. They took me to dinner there. And I looked around and it was full of these beautiful Southern lesbians. And I was like, this is the greatest restaurant I've ever Maybe seen in my whole life. You, I was say, I, you took the threat. I was like, all these beautiful women that are working there. And by the way, we were probably there. Maybe we have But you know what? My parents had no idea. They just liked it because they liked Southern food and they thought it was kind of throwback. So I was like, this is awesome. They're happy. They're getting good food. I'm happy. I get to check out the cute Southern girls. I think this is the best, man. And then my sister-in-law lets the cat out of the bag one day and tells them that it's full of gay people. And the next time I go home, I'm like, okay, we're going to Flying Biscuit. And they say, oh, we don't like that place anymore. I'm like, wait, what? What just happened? And they couldn't, art- I don't think they knew, but my mother was like, oh, like we think that just want to go to a different place she couldn't articulate why but here's the kicker they took me to agnes and muriel's in midtown okay yeah okay you know what i'm talking about it's a gay neighborhood in town it's got all this campus stuff it's full of beautiful young gay southern men and i'm like okay their taste is exquisite and i told my my sister-in-law do not blow this for me again you've already taken one restaurant off the table right but this is part of what i mean there was this place right karis bookstore was right up the hill from Flying Biscuit, right? And it, it was this place where you could see things and, and have this different experience and you didn't have it easy access on YouTube and all those spaces where now it's so great that you have all those spaces. For us, it was like such a revelation that not only was this, there access to this culture if you could get to a city, but even if you were living somewhere else, you started to get a sense of possibility. So there's a real tension though that happens, I think, in the 90s. What happens when it goes mainstream and what do you lose? And what's the threat back and forth to that? And one of the things we talked a lot about in my class was the whole question of the truth or dare tour and Madonna's appropriation of voguing, um, which is one of those questions, right? Which is very much out of the Harlem ball scene that she writes a pop song about hires uh, folks who were doing voguing in New York to choreograph her video and takes them on tour. And it becomes this huge cultural phenomenon, but primarily really enriching Madonna, right? And so like on the one hand in her documentary, Truth or Dare, about that tour, 
you've seen these beautiful young gay dancers and you're getting a vision of them. But on the other hand, she's very much controlling that story. And I think that's part of that debate. What happens when when you see actual voguing in, say, the Paris is Burning documentary or other spaces versus that glitzed up version of voguing? It's de-queered in some ways, but it's also very much kind of made safer for a public view. So that's always the dilemma, I think, when you talk about 90s queer culture. There was so much that that mainstream focus made possible. There were so many independent artists and independent films I got to see that I wouldn't have gotten to see if there hadn't been that larger focus, but it also meant that there was this kind of transformation that was happening that almost felt appropriative or exploitive in some ways. And then when they were done with them, when she was done with that tour, she moved on to the next thing and they were all left with that, that moment of glory and then really nothing to follow up with it. Um, I was just going to, Jump in on that and talk about, you're talking about the kind of, and I'll use the term, the exploitation of the gay. Um, so you mentioned some of these movies earlier. Like, I really like The Birdcage. I really like Priscilla, Queen of the Desert. Um, I've looked back at Tu Wong Fu, and I think it has some good moments, but it's not a movie that I really enjoy. And part of it is because I feel like the Birdcage, which was based upon a French play or book or movie or something, um, and Priscilla, and there's some other ones that really tried to present gay culture in a authentic way kind of thing. You know, like The Birdcage, yes, it has, but it's it really focuses on the relationship between the two men and, you know, and the, their struggles and that kind of stuff. And then you know, Priscilla is kind of that same. It's an authentic story where Tu Wong Fu is like, let's hire three really popular actors at the time and like put them into this or create a story that they can go with kind of thing. And it, it just doesn't seem to be as authentic, you know, in that. And then like you'd also talked about earlier, it was all of a sudden it was, it was a big thing for straight men to play these gay roles because it was almost like a, doing this would get you at the top of the list for Oscar nominations or Golden Globes or whatever. And then the stories were just not authentic, you know, kind of thing. But then at the same time, they said it's it was Oscar-worthy for straight men to play gay, gay characters, but then they would tell gay men they couldn't play straight men. You know, so like a lot, you know, you go back in hindsight and a lot of uh, act, especially male actors who came out later were being told that if you want to keep acting, and get good roles, you have to stay in the closet kind of thing. So it's this duality, you know, um, kind of two different sets of rules kind of thing. So, yeah. And that authenticity gets the heart of this, right? Like what counts as authentic? And, you know, I, I appreciate it's not a simple question because there's a lot of kinds of gay culture. There's only a certain version of gay culture that's getting exposed and celebrated, right? In certain ways. Um, but there's also a version of, you know, the complexity of what that looks like, for example. Um, one of the things I love about Priscilla, Queen of the Desert, this is a spoiler for those who haven't seen the film, cover your ears if you haven't. Um, you've got a, a performer of drag who is going and taking his friends. He's going, and the journey is, I'm going to go do a, a tour at this resort in, in the hinterland. And then you discover over the course of it that he has an ex-wife and all his gay friends are giving him a really bad time about it. And then, and then you discover when he gets there that they have a son. And, and then they're really freaking out. Um, and the whole reason that he's going is that the mother says, I need you to take him for a while. I need something that to do. And then you think you have one version, all of a sudden the ex-wife is a lesbian, right? So like there's this whole complicated 
you know, discussion of what family is and, affin and affinities and bonds and what that looks like. Um, and I really love the way it keeps knocking down expectations, right, of, of what these things are. And it's not kind of unitary. I think that's also true of a movie like Bound, which is this kind of like lesbian heist movie, right? Um, which is amazing, actually, even though it fits a lot of those those categories, it takes the, the kind of outsider and makes it a lesbian relationship. And the femme fatale is a queer woman. Um, and what's cool about that movie is, among other things, is the way that the directors really tried to get sex scenes between women right. And they actually consulted with Susie Sexpert, Susie Bright, who was a, a famous sex columnist in underground media. And I remember seeing it and thinking, how did these these two male directors get it right? Well, it's at the time, Wachowski brothers are now the Wachowski sisters. So now I know that it was trans women who were making the movie, and that's why it was so good. And that's why they got the nuance of that. Um, but it's very hard to do those roles, right? So many more were would be, you know, reductive or exploitive in different ways. It's hard to keep the authenticity because there are stereotypes that are expected about particular, even the idea of lipstick lesbian. Oh my God, there are there are lesbians who are feminine and you're like, oh, really? Like, is this where we are? But that is where they are. That was in some ways where we still are. This question of what, what they look like and what cultural tropes we accept. Authenticity is a complicated question. There's a lot of kinds of queer, but I also think there was a there was a lot of expectation of fulfilling whatever stereotype I'm bringing to you, and one of them was using gay culture as a kind of excessive um, transgressive place, which it is often, but not always. Right? Mm -hmm. See, you look like you want to jump in. No, I was just thinking about. Um, I'm glad you brought up that movie Bound, right? I think it's what Meg Tilly and Gina Gershon, right, are in that film, and you and and you're right. They're doing some interesting things in that. Um, and so bringing in that that background, Jamie, right, I think is important in terms of thinking who's also working behind the camera um, in terms of thinking about scene, right, and 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 um, representation. So that's an interesting. I also think about just other places where th we're talking about television and all these spaces, and I even think of the different ways in which queer culture gets caught up into in the canon of. Um, the Simpsons tele, uh, television show, right? The different moments in which you have like the cameos with with John Waters, right? Or they're different, they're different sort of um, um, storylines that you have, and so that kind of crossover. And I even think when you're talking about film, I think it's important to think about even John Waters' film, uh, not the remake, right? Comes out in '88, and that always to me is a is on the cusp. Anything from like '88 into the early '90s is part of the same sort of like decade moment, right? Bleeding in the long '90s. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the We're long, claiming yeah, exactly. the early, the long '90s. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, and this is what I mean. John Waters is a great example of this very edgy, right? Really. Um, bold queer vision that comes through and and not all the versions that are put out by hollywood are as groundbreaking mm -hmm. as that um, but they're also culturally important um let's talk for a minute about the ellen degeneres show by the way which I, was before we go there i just want to throw in um something that talking about uh, john waters and kind of his influence um so one of the animators um on the little mermaid was gay and was a huge fan of john waters and divine and apparently ursula is based upon divine if you look at them the the makeup and the body shape and everything um so that's kind of you know a john waters influence even on disney kind of thing i so. knew the secret plot to use 
cartoons that could birth children. That was the fear and the backlash. We're all there. Yeah, absolutely. And this is, and so again, I mean, if you have read Eve Sedgwick, who also was a big academic voice in the 1990s, our culture is already queer, right? Like when you look at so many of the enactors of various kinds of culture, queer people are all in there. So that's always an interesting moment of like, we're basically just showing you how the queerness has always been part of what we're doing. Um, but there's an explicit discussion that doesn't have to be encoded that happens. It's pretty exciting. I'll just mention the Ellen show because it's hard to go back to remind, to show people how crazy that was around the coming out. You know, Ellen has this sitcom um, and the character's not marked as gay. And then they make a decision to have her come out. Um, and like the media frenzy was just insane. And like, what are you doing? Exposing to the children. And she's on Oprah and there's like, a main uh, like a newsweek cover of her saying yep i'm gay and all these things um but what was interesting about it is you know that that episode if you haven't seen it is actually astonishing in the way it kind of comes to the fore of this connection and this discussion and her having to get rid of her fear um and it really and it does it in a way that's both sensitive and charming and funny um it was it was a huge moment but it also was the undoing of ellen's career for a long time you know, they canceled that show. I thought the final season of Ellen was the funniest of all, but that was because it showed all the things of when you come out, what it's like, right? To like uh, finding a first girlfriend and like figuring out the community. And, and so many folks said it's not funny anymore because they didn't want to relate to that or they had had that experience. Um, but, you know, not only her, I mean, one of the things they talked about was the woman who played her girlfriend also didn't get work for a while because they assumed just because she played that role. Um, Anne Hayes, who was her girlfriend at the time, lost a lot of those mainstream movies she was getting before that happened. Um, and it it was, so like that's that's the other side of like, there's this queer 90s moment, but it didn't mean that that stuff had gone away, right? Mm -hmm. um, and that's part of the the thing that I think is interesting in thinking about the 90s is that people felt very daring by doing it. It hadn't yet got to the point where like, there are queer people and there are all kinds of queer people. And there's a lot of versions of this that we need to talk about. You don't just get to cherry pick the ones you want to represent gay people for whatever political purpose you're doing. But that that happened quite a bit in the 90s. So one thing I want to add before we get close to wrapping up is the impact that the queer 90s has had on today. Uh, and I'll actually start because at the same time, Ellen was having you know her becoming out and stuff. Um, my so-called life, I think, was on ABC, and Wilson Cruz was playing a like fifteen-year-old queer uh, Latino, you know, teenager, and not getting the same press, you know, about it and stuff. And the reason I bring it up is because uh, Greg Berlanti, who has really exploded queer characters, authentic queer characters, onto the scene in the last decade points to my so-called life as being a major impact on him. And then like four years later, when he's in the writing room for Dawson's Creek, he's like, we're going to write an authentic kind of coming out uh, actually two episode arc with one of the characters or I'm, I'm quitting. And then within a year, he was like in control of the entire series kind of thing. But now then Wilson Cruz, what is it? 20 something years later, is playing, you know, one of the first kind of openly gay characters in Star Trek. So it's like, that's kind of his evolution, you know, from being this queer teenager to now being, you know, one of the first openly gay um, characters in Star Trek. And, but also, you know, the impact on Greg Berlanti and 
how many shows he's had and they've almost every one of them has included a queer character and that kind of stuff. So I think there's still an impact coming from the nineties on today. So absolutely. I mean, we think about a a series like pose, which would have never been possible in the nineties, but it absolutely is going back to that moment of Harlem drag ball culture and the documentary Paris is burning. Um, and, and giving us the much more kind of authentic and in-depth look of what Madonna kind of took in for a particular song. Um, I think you see that all the way through, even, even in, I think, a lot of the revival around now you're getting Netflix and other kind of streaming services are allowing for different kinds of stories that, that are more like independent media in, in the 90s. Something like Schitt's Creek, which I am now going through. I did see that episode, the, the uh, open mic night. It was awesome. Kevin, you were telling me about it. But that's a that's a kind of arc that even in mainstream television, they wouldn't have allowed them to grow in the way they did. It was only through these alternative media that you would get those. Um, all the influence and aspects you get of not only, you know, self-publishing uh, ways you can get word out there, but like pe- the way people use Instagram to get mainstream book contracts uh, and other kind of work. It allows for this diversity that that w- was there for a minute, went away for a while. But now there are these new forms that are emerging that I think are really amazing. So last words on the queer 90s. There's lots more to say. We could talk about this for about five hours, but we're going to try to stop and not go too long. Well, I will say um, just as a way to kind of wrap up for me is the fact that, you know, I came out in 99. So it was kind of at the end of it. And for me, I had, I guess, three really influential things during my coming out. Um, One was a book called by Jim Grimsley called Comfort and Joy. Uh, that came out, I think, in the fall of 99. Um, I think I have that right, but it may have been 2000. Either way, it was it was really important to me when I was reading it. Um, I, for several years, I reread it at Christmas every year because it's kind of set around Christmas. Um, the other was Queer as Folk. Um, I don't necessarily think it always gets the credit that it does. It use the stereotypes that have been put on gay people, but then complicated them and created um, these more complex characters over the seasons and stuff. Um, And everybody loved Debbie, which was the mom to kind of all of the queer boys kind of thing. You know, she worked in a diner. She was the actual mom to one of them, but she was kind of the de facto mom to all of them. And, um, I, I know I'd mentioned kind of Dawson's Creek, but also uh, the 2000 season of the real world that was set in New Orleans. Um, so it had kind of a Southern aspect to it. But one of the big storylines was the real impact of Don't Ask, Don't Tell on gay relationships and uh, queer people who wanted to serve in the military kind of thing. And um, I think that would some way you had mentioned uh, Pedro Zamora earlier and being HIV positive and, actually kind of passing away during the season, how big of an impact that had. And I think the um, the New Orleans uh, season of the real world was kind of similar in that it wasn't just a token queer character. They were using it to kind of educate about something related to queer life. Um, so I think for the, me, that was all really important kind of within a year of me coming out. So, Teresa? Oh, no. I, like I said, there's, like you said, Jamie, there's so much right to talk about that we could continue on. But I do think there's that it, it is an interesting sort of moment. And as Kevin's getting at as well, some of the things that you see happening there um, 
we can see expanded today, right, with the different things that are happening in television and different streaming formats. But it's also important to point out, right, that there's already a long history before this, right? It's just whether or not it's actually been visible. Um, so, yeah. Absolutely. A long history, before, a long aftermath. I mean, I, I think the show, the, the L word was very much 90s sort of lesbian lipstick culture, even though it was a 2000s, you know, series. Um, I'll just end sort of with my, my uh, you know, two sides of the decade, right? Um, I stumbled into a teeny tiny femi- lesbian feminist bookstore in Orem, Utah, when I was a student there. And I just thought I was going there for lunch. They had three shelves in the back. I didn't know at the time that that's what it was. But that's where I discovered a lot of really great lesbian writing. Uh, when I moved to Philadelphia, I was in the hotel. I'd, my mother had driven down to help me move in. And I snuck downstairs while she was still sleeping to buy the Philadelphia gay news out of the local paper, right? I had 75 cents because there was an actual gay weekly newspaper in Philadelphia that had all the details about gay life in the city. And one of them was Giovanni's room. And I remember that moment of going into Giovanni's room and like that, will people see me going in there? What will happen? And it was just such a wonderland to walk in there and have all of these t-shirts and buttons and books and magazines and everything you ever wanted to imagine. I feel like my whole self-education in queer literature happened in the in the uh, discount rack in the back of that store where I would buy up all the books as I was going forward. Just having that space to go to, to explore and find it was so much part of that. Um, then you get to later in the decade and not, you know, my favorite lesbian film from the 90s is When Night is Falling, which is this beautiful movie set in Quebec. Um, but because there, that scene was, it was ranked, it was given an NC-17 rating because it was two women, even though when you look at that scene compared to the other ones, it wasn't there. So you had that kind of giving with one hand and taking with the other in the 90s, right? Where you had access to it, but there was still this kind of censoring. And and it showed how important those independent spaces were. When I moved to Pittsburgh in 97, the uh, lesbian bookstore had just closed. It was just the beginning of that wiping out of it. And I remember reading an article in the paper where they said, y'all, you have to support your, your smaller queer spaces. Um, So for me, it's like sort of recognizing the importance of that mainstream explosion, but also understanding that 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 attention comes and goes. But the underlying culture that you're talking about, Teresa, that predates the 90s and goes on beyond it. It's good to remember in another kind of moment of queer visibility and trans visibility, the mainstream media may not always keep that interest, but the queer community continues. And sort of figuring out ways to find other venues to support it that aren't controlled by corporate leaders in new york or la is really important Mm -hmm. all right i think that does it thank you kevin i hope you come visit us again sometime soon for another topic uh that's all for today we hope we'll catch you next time on on swerve south yeah thanks (laughs) y'all